What's up, everybody? We are back with the Small Town Wealth Podcast and a very special guest on today, taking more of a spiritual and mindfulness approach. And uh, we're very excited for this one. Yeah, this he, the guest today definitely embodies the ultimate message that we have with small town wealth, that wealth is not just in your wallet or in your bank account. It's in the mind, body, and spirit. And we got a, a big time lesson in vulnerability. And our guest is Sean McMahon. Sean is a yoga instructor for Lotus and Lettuce or at yoga, Lo- Lotus and Lettuce. He's a very interesting story to tell. And the story weaves through and ends up in this really cool place with a lot of really interesting lessons. And it's something that we can all take from and apply to our lives, regardless of where we are. Very stoked to have you guys listen to this uh, little bit of a different approach, different vibe to our other episodes. Like I said, definitely more of a uh, spiritual, mindful and uh, self-awareness topic episode. So without further ado, here is our talk with Sean. Thank you so much for coming in. We've got Sean McMahon in the studio. Sean is a yoga teacher at multiple studios, which we're going to get into and and understand. I personally wanted Sean on the podcast for several reasons in which we'll we'll go into, but I think he offers a really great spiritual perspective. So we really appreciate you coming in, especially so close to Christmas. You the must pleasure be, is mine. I'm absolutely, absolutely happy to be here. But uh, actually, this time of year, it's not busy at the studio, just Christmas pageants and office parties and potlucks and the season sort of takes people out of their practice even when they need it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's nice to be busy, but it's also nice to respect, you know, that people do have other obligations and they do have a balance in their lives. So right. we're there when we, they need us and they tend to flood back after Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. They flock back in numbers. <laughs> and do you get that same rush after Christmas where it's like not the, as intense the whole... as the, the weight loss crews? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. We do see a lot of people. New year, like, new me. New yeah. Year, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But people do get back into the practice and commit to a practice. And then by Easter, it kind of tails off again. So. Right. Right. That's cool. And you, so you teach at Lotus and Lettuce and Vernon. That's how we met. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, my wife and I have been going there for, I don't know, roughly six months or so. And we definitely took to your classes, but where else do you teach and where else have you taught recently? Well, moving to town, uh, we did have a, a relationship with Ladies World, still do. I still teach there on Saturdays. Okay. Uh, it's a captive audience because they're all membership, paid memberships there. So it's not really a drop-in style, but it's something I like to offer to that demographic there. And then recently, Ryan Lear opened up a space in Kelowna, and I got an invite to teach there. So Saturday afternoons, I teach in Kelowna at the one yoga space above Lululemon, which was a real honor, too. So, That's cool. Yeah. That's really neat. When did you start doing that? Uh, in August. I went and did a teacher training with him in June, no, July, in Saskatoon, and I consider him a senior teacher of mine. And so when the invite came, it was really an honor. So. Gotcha. Yeah. I got to say, like... You have a Wayne Dyer-esque voice, like oh, yeah? mesmerizing. <laughs> it's perfect for podcasting. Like the, this like, oh, I don't know. It's just super soothing. I'm like sitting here like, you ever seen the Jungle Book? Like Ka? Uh, yeah, like, yeah. I'm literally sitting here like, whoa. <laughs> the hypnotist, yeah. It's That's funny. Awesome. I did 16 years on the railroad, a lot of radio communication, and I used to get that all the time on the on the job there too. No it's doubt. I radio can see it for yeah. sure, yeah. <laughs> He's got a good voice for yoga too. Like your classes, like you have a really a voice that carries, which is good because sometimes you can't hear or you're so blissed out that you're just kind of like, 
Well, uh, I'll get the gist of it. But for you, like you can't, you, your voice like commands attention, which is great. So I'm sure that's like served you well in, in yoga as well. I didn't have to work hard at it either where you go to classes, you know, without singling teachers out, but everyone's been to a class where the teacher's singing along and it's about yoga voice and move here now. And it's like, oh, just stop, just stop. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah Be yeah. real. Yeah. So I, I didn't have to fight a lot with that. So I'm, I'm pleased that it works for my advantage for sure. Gotcha. So you've been in a teacher since t- 2012? No, 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 no. I started teaching middle of 2016. Okay. You've been doing yoga since I around s- that time. My first touch with yoga was 2008. Oh, uh, wow. Really I got my way off. No, no, no. It's, it's fine. Um, I was still sort of in the, my past lifestyle back then. And so I was as a hobby almost once in every couple of weeks, I'd go to a class and, right. for fitness, of course. And, yeah. Uh, um, and when I, made the choose choice to start living healthy that's when yoga really became a, a daily practice for me and even then it was just my personal practice it was probably end of 2015 where i had a breakthrough and decided no this is something i want to do as a teacher this is something where i can draw on past experience um, and just really be vulnerable and open and authentic and see if that resonates with people and so far so good so far it seems to be yeah so let's take it back then on this podcast we really like to delve deep into who you were perhaps on the way to who you are now so you can kind of start where you feel most comfortable if you want to start with sometimes we get people that talk all the way from you know three or four years old like what kind of kid you were right. and uh, i want to hear from birth <laughs> yeah. i want to hear what origin. were you thinking right out of the womb yeah i want to hear as origin. a young zygote i had uh, fond memories <laughs> <laughs> so how did it start where did you grow up and and what was your childhood like uh really really fond memories of my childhood i started in cranbrook um born in edmondson but don't have memory many memories of edmondson we moved to cranbrook and my family built a an acreage in Cranbrook, just outside of Cranbrook, I guess. And so school, high school, uh, first jobs, they were all in Cranbrook. Small town, growing up on an acreage, horses and dogs, and just the life you can imagine, you know, get out of the house, come back till it's dark kind of thing. And um, not rich, but never, never where I went without, if I wanted to play sports or I wanted to travel with sports or I wanted to get a job and needed rides, I always had it. And if I wanted to hang out with friends or be in a band, it was an option. And so it's nothing that I was ever um, deprived of. And it's, it's something that I have no, um, nothing but fond memories right. of growing up in that town and that environment. Um, and then the job with the railroad started in 86. And for eight years, I worked at CP Rail in Cranbrook. And then I took a buyout. And then almost a year later, got a job with BC Rail. So moved to Prince George and then Vancouver and then up and down that that line. Um, that was another eight years. And then the story kind of gets off into many tangents after that. But uh, right. yeah, that was that's the gist of growing up. Always in sports. I've played a lot of soccer, played rugby skiing golf like just about anything you can get your hands on in that environment it wasn't expensive to ski it wasn't expensive to golf or travel with sports so it was yeah it was, it, it was a really great uh really great way to as an active person to, to have those opportunities so 
Cranbrook's a good place to be active. That's for sure. Yeah, where what was the little town you were called? And I had cousins in Kimberley. Kimberley is nuts now. Really? Went, oh my god, you wouldn't believe it. They uh, it's like a little Canmore Banff now. No way. Really? Oh my god. Oh, I know they got a, like a crazy ski hill up there. So I would imagine like cousins were like fifty minute drive from the ski hill. Not even. Cranbrook, uh, if you saw the ski hill from downtown and on a sunny day, then you could, you know, okay, let's round up. We're going up at noon. We're going to do a half half day. And if it was, you couldn't see the ski hill, like, oh, it's not, let's not bother. It's too cloudy here. Right, you right. Know, you could be a really fair weather skier. But yeah, Kimberly, 20 years ago, they were giving houses away. And now it's just completely no kidding, on eh? its end. It's, it's the most expensive houses. And, oh, really? Yeah. Everyone that takes their buyouts and sells their big houses in Vancouver and Toronto, they all seem to wind up in no a place way. like that. So, Interesting. Yeah. Because yeah, we know that a lot of them are coming into the Okanagan, but... Yeah, there's a ton of people coming here. Like yeah. from my client base, there's lots from Alberta. If the economy's not doing great there, they might exit the oil patch and come here. Or just someone that, okay, well, I'm going to trade in my two-bedroom apartment downtown for a house here. Yeah. So you do get quite a few. Not as many as people think. They're not like flocking here in droves. It, it still is... Between Alberta and BC, I think it's less than twelve percent. Well, if you imagine the lifestyle, if you imagine the lifestyle here, and then turn it up to ten in Kimberley, because there's seven golf courses, there's the ski. Oh my god, right that's in, a lot for a city like Kimberley. No, exactly. And then you drive up, like literally from downtown, it's a two-minute drive to the base of a hill, and the population's five thousand people. I mean, you, you could bike to the hill, you could bike to the golf course. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, there's a, it's here times times a thousand. Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah. I haven't been out there. I've I've been in Vermeer, you know, some border areas in the Kootenays, but not not that far, so I wouldn't wouldn't have any reference point. Have you been to Yeah, I've been to Kimberley a couple of times. Gotcha. Yeah, it went up skied the hill, it was pretty nice. That's nice sweet. area. And it's it's crazy because if you're It wasn't Kimberley, crazy when I was there though. No. <laughs> but you've always got the reference point. You got the Rockies on one side and you, wherever you turn, you've always got the Rockies there and then the Purcells on the other side. Oh so, nice. Yeah. That's a That's beautiful, beautiful place. Man. So, like, interest in sports, do you ever, did you ever follow sports? Do you still watch sports? Like, what oh, kind of? Oh, yeah, yeah. Crazy yeah? about sports, yeah. What's your favorite sport? Yeah, what do you follow? Uh, that's a great question. I've given up on the NFL. I've given up on American football. I just, uh, because of my yoga background, I struggle with some of this stuff now. Uh, I used to be crazy into English football. And I just find now when I'm in tune with emotions and energies, I find the passion of uh, English football is actually a lot of rage. <laughs> like it's, it's serious rage. Like they call it banter, but it's, it's, it's forceful rage at their own teams, the other teams, the other fans, their own fans. Like the, just to hear the conversations in the stands and to, to what they pick up on the mics on the field, it's just, it's so much anger. I, I, I love the beautiful game, but I really struggle you know, being able to watch the sport at all. I love playing it. I still play, you know, a couple times a week. Um, I find rugby, for all its um, quote-unquote violence, it's a much more passionate and less angry game. Mm. And then, I mean, I, I'm a passionate Oilers fan. 
as far as hockey goes. Gotcha. So, uh, I don't watch a lot of hockey unless the Oilers are on, but I watch every game of the Oilers. And gotcha. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I like that you follow. I like that you follow the team that you you came from, kind of thing. I think I'm really passionate about that topic. Is people that are like fans of their own team from when they come from, not yeah. like just jumping around. To, oh, Golden State's doing well now. I'm gonna follow them. No, or, exactly. Yeah. Oh, the Leafs are finally good again. Like I'm a Leafs guy. Yeah, I'm only like, gonna be there if they're like you know playoff team. Yeah. Or oh, the Canucks like suck now. I'm not interested in them anymore. But yeah. Oh, the minute they made the Stanley Cup, like, so no, I uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate no, that and in person. I'm old enough to remember the glory days, but you know, if you're a <laughs> yes. fan, you've got to go with good and bad. So I mean, it's it's been narrow or lean now, but it's still it's still my passion. It's I can't sit down and watch a, a Flames game, for instance, if they're playing whoever. But if the Oilers are on, I'm in. I'm yeah, all in, yeah. So. There's no reason to like you know even even though there can be some violence and uh, rage in those sports too. I mean, I'm a big NBA fan. There's still plenty of that. And you go on Instagram and, and see some of the, the comment sections or whatever. It's, it's quite grim at times, yeah. but it's still like sport is uniting in a way and it's therapeutic in ways if you choose to, to view it that way, right? So it's kind of cool. You stuck with your roots in a sense. You have a very like authentic feel to a lot of that, so. Yeah, and it's. I feel like there's even a healing aspect to it in a lot of ways. And I, I think in stadium and around the teams, it's not the same as an internet chat board. Like the internet's filthy, regardless of what the topic yeah, is. Yeah, there's always someone. Yeah, but like in stadium, I mean, there's there's friendly banter. Teams, fans show up in like a Canucks jersey at an Oilers game. They don't feel like their lives are in danger. You know, like it's just an experience. It's. It, I don't find the same rage as you would if you wore the wrong jersey to an English stadium. You know, if yeah. you show up in in, pick <laughs> yeah. uh, a stadium, if you show up to an Arsenal game wearing a Chelsea jersey, you're probably not getting out on skates. So. I actually have a, a good British friend of mine that I just visited in Victoria not too long ago, and he was telling me about that that culture, and he was saying that most of the games that he's gone to, and most of you know the, the common way of doing it like they don't seat opposing fans with like the home fans no you have a section there's no, you, a you section not getting out of that section. You, no you, you can't you yeah. do not go there they sell just, they sell like spurs specific tickets in the arsenal yeah. stadium you have to be contained to that area they'll even have security guards around the area to Making make sure, sure like, it's that's crazy man that. that's like total like crowd control because they've probably it's gone crazy, through but it. You haven't been to an English football game, and it's like oh, I can imagine. It's man. it's ridiculous. Like some, I mean, I don't envy the players either. Like you go to the, you're an away, you're an away team, and you go to the corner of the, like the most vocal section of the stadium, and you got a corner kick, and you're standing there getting ready, and you can just on TV you can see them shouting and throwing things at the yeah. poor guy, oh and you're just God, like, man. my goodness, the mental the mental strength you must have to be able to handle that is just. Absurd. And if you're an Arsenal fan, I mean, even Arsenal home game, if Ozil's taking a corner kick, I, I can't imagine what he's hearing even from the home fans. It's just like, you can say you got all the money in the world, that's fine, but it's still got to hurt your soul. To oh, yeah. oh, yeah. It's hard to like truly let all that stuff brush off your back. Right? No, precisely. Yeah. We all have a trigger point yeah. <laughs> at some point, but yeah, that's interesting. I want to take it back because I was reading in a blog and there there seemed like a kind of crucial moment in your life. And it was when you were working with CP and then there was this buyout. Yes. So what was the motivation behind doing the buyout and like how did that change the trajectory of your of your life? Well, the motivation for the buyout, the motivation for the job in the begin, beginning was um, 
a quick and easy way to save money for university. And so they, the goal was to get in and get out quick. And then eight years later, I was still there and I was an engineer and I had mortgage and, you know, expectations that I get married and have kids in the small town and, and collect my pension and, and just be a fat old railroader the rest of my life. And it's like, <laughs> you know, when the buyout presented itself as that, okay, well, here's my big shot. Here, here I'm going to take this money and actually this is what I was here for. I'll take this money. I'll, I'll take some time off and then I'll sign up next semester and I'll be in university and yeah, that didn't work out that well. Because you think like, you know, if you were thinking back before you started, that would be like the perfect opportunity. The perfect Man, opportunity. they should just buy me out. That would be like the this golden the scenario setup. that won't ever happen. This was the setup. What this... year are we thinking on right now? Like, what, so the buyout, I took, I signed my papers in August of 92 and got the money in November. And then a month later, I was on a beach in Mexico and just... All the best. And you're already married with kids at this point? No, no, no. No, oh, the, no. the expectation okay. was the expectation was, oh, okay. Right. No, I was, I was. How old? Well, 92, I would have been 27. Gotcha. Geez, so cash out big, not even 30 yet. Yeah. Beach in Mexico. Living on the beach in Mexico. Oh, you like moved there? Like, just I was there for the, the whole winter. Yeah, three months. I Staying left. at resorts or what? No, I had an apartment in Mazalan. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I left. Whereabouts is that? Mazalan? Yeah. It's on the Pacific side, yeah. just sort of across the, from the Cape from Cabo San Lucas. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, I had an apartment just off the gold zone and uh, living the life. And school started to get further and further in rearview mirror. And I thought, well, I should do some traveling. I should do some partying. And then uh, the partying took over and the money started draining. And I was like, oh, shoot. No, it. <laughs> So is this uh, one of the points where drinking became more of a central thesis to your life? It always had a, uh, it always had a priority, a prominence. I guess is a better word, prominence. It always was there as a weekend warrior, playing soccer, or rugby. It was work hard in practice or game, and then play hard after. The reward was always the the, the camaraderie in the dressing room, or heading out with the team, or getting on a bus with the team, and and just. Um, celebrating win or loss or hard practice or anger against the coach or whatever. It was the bonding and the drinking. So it was a weekend warrior kind of lifestyle. And then when the responsibilities disappeared, then it became a, every day there should be an excuse to be drinking or partying. Mm. And so, you know, other people's jobs or other people that didn't have the money, it was like, oh, come on, I'll fund this, let's go. And so, you know, in a year, you can imagine what you'd, you'd blow through. Yeah, money doesn't last that long when you're not making it. Like, it's surprising how quick it can go, right? No, exactly. It's and amazing. It, and if you're buying the new snowboard and you're buying the ski pass and you're buying the new golf clubs and you're paying for flights and, and a trip to Vegas and a trip to Mexico for the winter and then all of a sudden, oh, I, I, oh my God, what's left? Okay, now what? So. I'm always curious how people, like, end up in that spot, though, too, because, like, you came, you clearly – probably had to work really hard to get where you were, like to the point of the bio, like mm -hmm. so clearly hard work and everything. What was it like your relationship with your parents and everything? Oh, terrific. Terrific too. So come from a good family, like things yeah. happen and everything. Do you feel that maybe like there was like a lack of motivation, like you didn't know where you wanted to go? Was there maybe a sense of entitlement that came along with it? Like where did you, what do you pinpoint back to what got you where you were after working so hard in a company and building your way up? Well, I shouldn't mischaracterize it. I mean, I was always 
was always dedicated when I'm there. Yeah. But I wasn't dedicated to where I considered a full-time job or career. Like, I always took the time off to play sports. I always took the time off. If there was a reason to go, we're going to Calgary to see Bruce Springsteen or we're going to the coast to play in the provincials, like, the job was always, like, a quick phone call. Hey, I'm sick. Book me off and then take off. Like, I was never a passionate employee at, at the job. I was good at it. I was a good engineer, and I, you know, I, I took pride in doing a good job, but I was seldom there. And so that just carried over. Um, I mean, you can imagine at that age, you just feel bulletproof, like nothing bad's going to happen. Nothing bad has happened. What, what's the worst that could happen, you know? So, and even then, you know, as the money's running out, I get a, hear a rumor that BC Rail's hiring and I throw a, just a flyer, send a resume and boom, I was hired, <laughs> you know? So was this when the money, all the money was running out and you're like, shit, I need to get back on my feet somehow. Precisely. You yeah. came home. And, and what, what happened from there? So how well, I came your... up from Mexico and then, you know, I immediately turned around, flew back, went to Vegas, went to California, went to Houston, hooking up with people I'd met while I was in Mexico. And so that was another two month party and then get back. And now it's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> this is, a, this is bleak. And so then I, um, actually did a labor landscaping laborer job for the summer just to you know, offset, okay, if I, if I need beer money, at least I got beer money and I don't have to touch everything else, um, which it was a great, great summer. I still remember that summer fondly. Um, the, the fitness level was incredible, you know, playing soccer, rugby, playing at night, digging holes during the day, laying sod during the day, and then right back at it at night. Like it was physically, I was never better. Well, and you're landscaping too. Yeah. That has its own physical exactly, yeah. component. Yeah. So that was a great summer. Uh, all, all through 93, I have nothing but fond memories of that. But yeah, as the summer drew to a close, it was starting to get to panic stations. And when BC Rail reared up, that's like, let's go. And by the end of November, I was living in Prince George. Never been there. Didn't know a soul there. Wow. Yeah. Well, actually, that's not true. I knew a couple of people just uh, through sports and stuff, but... Yeah, it was, it was a blind faith move, that's for sure. And so how long were you at BC Rail? Another eight years. Another eight years. Yeah, so that's when the turmoil and the tumult, and that's when things started to get less than idyllic, where I went through life without any potholes, without any roadblocks or stumbling. That's, that's when life decided to roll the dice for me. So that's... Well, explain to us what happened. Like, you know, the more... These are sensitive topics, for a lot of people. And I oh, think, yeah. I think a lot of us have issues going that far in. And it's almost like we're often in like a low grade state of denial all the time. Just trying to be like, well, no, this, this wasn't like that, or it wasn't like this, but I get the feeling that through yoga, you're pretty in tune with who you are. At least you're, you're self-aware, no doubt. Yeah. Self-aware. So There's always inquiry. There's always, you know, constant assessing, and and mulching and and chewing through things, um, seeing where you sit. So but, work us through that. Work us through how that impacted you over eight years. You know what led to the the turmoil and and everything. I think it's just sometimes you're allowed to coast. I think you're especially for someone who. I mean that the topics of privilege always come up. The topics of white privilege always come up, but. It's a real thing. If you're a reasonably good-looking, reasonably well-spoken person of a certain skin color, you always get the benefit of the doubt. There's always a benefit of the doubt. 
Mm-hmm. You, you put an application in for an apartment, you're probably going to get it. You put in an application for a job, you're probably going to get the interview. And so I skipped through a lot of where other people might have had hurdles or difficulties. Um, I, I just, I didn't, I can't think of times prior to 95 or 96 where I didn't always land on my feet. Like it, it just, it was. So no matter what bad no matter happened, what. it's like, oh, I have this faith that I'll, I'll land I, somewhere. Fine. I run out of money, I get a job. You know, what's, what's the big deal? Or I, I don't have a place to stay, I'll get an apartment. What's the big deal? Like it's, it wasn't ever a case that I wouldn't or that I would consider in my head that I wouldn't. So not really prepared for when things go sideways. Like there's nothing that I, you know, small things like folks split up or, you know, you have relationships that split up. Like everyone has those, but nothing that, not a hurdle where it's like, oh, I need an escape plan or I need, I need some sort of strategy. And then that's all of a sudden now moving into those turbulent waters. That was, that's where things went sideways. Not having a plan and not, being prepared for the worst case scenario and then it happening. So what was the worst case scenario? What what was happening to you at that time? Like obviously the sounds like the drinking got more of a habit or how did um, how did things end up drinking, the way that they did? From the time of the buyout, drinking was a constant it was a constant. It had moved from weekend warrior to drinking in my room on my own sometimes and and still not impacting in serious ways, like never where I would miss work because of drinking or I wouldn't be too sick to be able to play a sport or or show up where I was committed to, but moving towards daily drinking or long binges of drinking. Um, Still in the party mode, like, from the outside, it looked like it was, you know, always an excuse to drink. But moving towards, you know, taking over the life, which um, on the outside looking in, again, this is when I moved into a relationship with who's someone who turned it, you know, eventually I married. Uh, and the first few years of marriage are always bliss. And, you know, so it's, you know, this is a nagging thing for her and, you know, something I'm trying to hide from her. But still, you know, overall... Life's half, help, healthy and happy, and things are seemingly smooth. Uh, but the first real hurdle was the the day I heard that I had cancer. That was the first. Oh shit! I need a a strategy. I need coping skills, and I don't have them. So that was right. that was the first first of many. Um, stumbling blocks that turned into. Uh, tripping and falling down a well, like moving towards rock bottom. So, right. how old were you when you got diagnosed with cancer? Uh, thirty-one. Thirty-one. And what kind of cancer oh, were you diagnosed with? Uh, malignant melanoma. Melanoma. With wow. uh, fatal prognosis. So, the GP that diagnosed me and took the original sample, he was the one who, you know, called me into his office, and. It wasn't a case of, well, we'll book you an appointment. It was like, if you can get here, get here now. So I gathered up my wife and went in, and it was like literally, there's no good way to say this, so I'm just going to say it. Uh, it's a 3.5-millimeter um, mole that we think has traveled into the body, and we don't see a good outcome. And it was like sitting on that big bench table to like cold sweat, 
faint, fell off the bench, hit my head on the floor, complete pass out. Like it was literally like this. That is, was just something you couldn't have couldn't possibly cope with, foreseen. Could not cope with the, the news, and it just yeah, and never never had anything bordering on that kind of severity in my life. So yeah, well, and around that was it around that time where your mother was diagnosed with cancer? Same as well? month. So that's crazy. We man. traveled out to Edmonton where she was living to break my news, and then less than two weeks later, she got her own diagnosis. Which oh my god! So it's bang, bang. And her outcome was good. She was supposed to survive. They thought they caught it early enough. And really quickly, um, you could tell that things were going well for me and weren't going well for her. And so again, without skills, without any strategy, you know, just avoiding her bad news, staying in my positive news, staying in Prince George when she was in Edmonton, um, making time to go out there, but not not as much as I should have, and letting her feed me the lines that I wanted to hear, where like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, things are going well. Like, okay, mom's good. And she actually did phone one day with a um, the news that her x-rays had shown all the tumors were gone, they had shrunk and they had disappeared, which I think a lot of people going through this tend to have that moment where, you know, the radiation's working, things are going well, and then the next time they're in there, they're back or worse, and which which happened to her. But for a moment there, for, you know, about a month, it was like, oh, right on. She's going to be fine. going just fine. Yeah, so focus on me, focus on me, stay in my, my lane and stay in my, you know, carry on with my routine. And so it wasn't more than 18 months before she actually passed away. Oh, man. Yeah. And so that was that was the first real kick where I didn't have any way of coping. And so now it became, rather than party boy, it was now it was medicating. And which immediately causes issues in the marriage and the relationship, immediately causes issues at work. And, you know, if anyone's been around an alcoholic, then now there's, you know, maybe a bottle in the freezer, maybe a bottle in the car outside, maybe a bottle hidden in the garage and, you know, wait for her to go to bed and have a couple of drinks. And then she comes out and I'm passed out on the couch and it's a fight. And, you know, anyone who's been around an alcoholic probably understands these stories. But yeah, that's, that was when it became medication where it was survivor's guilt and guilty feelings of like neglecting her when she was alive and neglecting her her recovery or attempts at recovery and you know neglecting the relationship and wallowing in my pity and so now we're you know we're not as close as we could be we're not supporting each other and and it just it starts to snowball and so we moved to Edmonton in 2002. I quit the railroad as she had an opportunity for a promotion. And that was probably, in hindsight, the end of our relationship. We, still, we lasted for another five years, but that move, neither one of us had any kind of coping skills for what it'd be like with me quitting the railroad and looking for work and what it'd be like with her taking on extra responsibility. And then I'm still wallowing in my own pity and, yeah, we didn't last more than five years after that. So, so it wasn't like that was this, you know, preordained plan 
master no. plan. It was like, hey, we're going to do this. And then after a couple of years, we're going to do this. It just, it, it kind of rolled that way. But you see that as kind of a catalyst. A catalyst. What happened. You know, and probably if somebody's laying out the markers for me to follow a path, I didn't see the path, but leading me to where I would eventually wind up. Right. But the, the, the plan was somebody offered her uh, a promotion and she said, I can move to Edmonton with this promotion. I'm like, good, I'm sick of the railroad. I'll, I'll quit and let's, let's go. go. Yeah, yeah. It's Which, an opportunity for you in some ways. So the kicker is a year later, the Liberal government sells BC Rail and I would have gotten a buyout again. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but, you know, the way my life was going, not nah, quit. Who cares? We'll Do you think that would have been a bad thing, though? Considering the lack of coping skills and the alcohol issue, do you think that buyout, the fact that you didn't get a buyout maybe was more of a gift than having one? No, I think what it would have done is probably kept us in Prince George, though. Okay. And I can't picture my life if I'd stayed there. So, right. Yeah, I don't, for good or for better or worse, I can't picture my life in that role. Mm-hmm. where I'd stayed there and found another job and maybe we're still together, maybe we're not, maybe we got kids, maybe we don't. Like that's, I don't, I, I can't, can't say for sure it would have been the worst thing, but it wouldn't have been the path, that's for sure. Right. When did, uh, when did I guess you go into remission and like the doctor said you're cancer free kind of thing? They don't, for melanoma, they don't. They you do two years of pills. I never did chemo radiation, I did chemo pills. Um, and then they just check. See if it comes back kind of thing? See if it spreads. They can't just keep doing checks. Living in Prince George, it was comical because they didn't have CAT scans. They didn't have MRIs. They had a CAT scan shortly after I was diagnosed. They brought one in. Um, but because my prognosis was so poor, in those days, the surgeon would have taken the lymph nodes out just as that's, just, that's where it's going. So we just we preemptively take them out. Uh, but my surgeon said, well, that's kind of barbaric because I don't want you to suffer. You've got only a short time left, so we don't want you to suffer. And so they didn't take the lymph nodes out, and God bless that guy. They pretty much thought you were dead, hey? And that's yeah. why they didn't oh, want to take them out. Yeah, but God bless that guy because oh. there's no way I'd be a yoga teacher. I wouldn't be playing soccer now. I wouldn't be active. Oh, like, if they pulled pulled the lymph nodes out, that would have been like, oh, I God bless that guy. That's what their, yeah. that's what their solution was. So how is your relationship with cancer. I'm curious about that then. Well, I don't like know. Like looking back at it now, looking at the people that are affected by it, um, looking at your own situation, what, what, what's your relationship with cancer? Well, that's a deeper subject. Um, to finish the first answer though, like after five years, they stopped checking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they just like, don't think about it anymore. Don't let it dominate your life. But they never say you're in remission <laughs> because it can go dormant. Melanoma can go dormant and then it can reappear in the brain or in the liver. And then for most people, if that's what happens, then it's like, sorry, we'll make you comfortable, but this is o- it's over. Right. Um, but I recently was just in to see a doctor and he said, no, after 20 years, it's you're good. We've never seen it come back after this long. So that's the first time I've ever had anyone take that dangling sword away from me. So my relationship with cancer for a long time was just like, fingers crossed, you know? your fingers, hold your breath. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm still a 10% risk for another melanoma. Like I'm not out of the clear, but that would be a new case. That wouldn't be a continuation of the old case. Right. But going through that, 
especially as a, as a as someone who's trying to uh, teach mindfulness and teach awareness, um, I'm really hyper focused on the people around cancer. Um, I say I'm a lot. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. Yeah, um, just go at, go at your own pace. I mean, the, these are sensitive topics too. So you know, like, however you need to get it out is is totally cool, man. Yeah, yeah. So if if somebody were to tell you tomorrow you have cancer, the focus is on, I have cancer. I have to beat this. I have to survive. The the survival outcome is what everyone wants. Um, the problem is, problem maybe not the right word, but. If you've got a support system, if you've got a wife or a family or a mother or father, their focus is also on your survival. Their focus is also on the good outcome. And so everyone devotes energy to that. So if you've got kids, they sort of wind up in the background, daddy's sick or mommy's sick. Mm. Um, the husband devotes, like, we've got to take care of you, we've got to take care of you. The wife, we've got to take care of the husband, however that relationship is. So everyone is sending energy out. And with good reason, that's, that's the only humane way you would react. But at the end of the day, those people need care too. And how often does anyone say, you know what, I'm kind of bitter, I, I need some time for me, or the kids, you know, they don't want to say like, oh, they want mom to be well, they don't want to go, oh, well, what about us? Like, what about my pageant or my trip, or, you know, or some focus on me? So, I'm looking for opportunities, not now, but as I move forward, where I could be of use to people like that, where get them in a room and just let them be able to vent authentically and vulnerably without fear of like, what an asshole thing to say. Like what, you know, mm -hmm. because it's, it's real. Like I, I want a good outcome for the person I love, but I also need time i need wellness so wouldn't the therapy be nice to, to extend to those people like a yoga or meditation or um that's uh, th that was my takeaway from going through it is the spotlight spot shine spotlight shining on me and everyone else is sort of pushed to the background and it's great everyone wants that but um it's not not healthy for everyone around you like people deplete people run out of steam like, like they, they need that help too so I think the people who are going through it need the energy need the help but they, they don't need as much um, people are already aware of them it's the people in the background that I'd like to pull out into the spotlight too that I that would be where eventually someday the wellness would be for the full unit mm. you know like well it seems seems to make sense that if you help, like you said, if there was a support system for those folks, it would make it that much more likely that they could remain strong. Because some of these cancer fights are not six, most of them are not six months long or a year long. They're multiple year fights and sometimes fight of a lifetime. And gory too. Yeah. Like the, somebody going through chemo for, for whatever, you know, there's burns, there's depletion, there's hair falling out there. The body's ravaged, the mind's ravaged, the spirit, like, you know, the, that's, you're devoting all your energy to, to supporting that person and God bless you, you should be, but, you know, you're right. 
when do you get to the end of that well? When do you get to where I, I don't have it? I don't have it. I can't drive. How I can't are they work. supposed I can't. to support the person yeah. at the end of that if they have nothing left? Exactly. It's exactly. interesting. Yeah. So not to neglect or take the spotlight away from the person. That's not at all what I'm saying. But yeah, I would, my relationship to it would be to start to draw those people into the healing circle, like the keep them part of it and acknowledge that, you know, like sometimes you're bitter or sometimes you're upset or, you know, sometimes you're just scared and nobody's asking you like, you know, how, how are you doing? Like, Well, it's interesting you say that because I've read, uh, I don't know if you've read Russell Brand's book, Recovery. I have. He talks about that in depth where he, he's, I can't remember what step it, it is. You might, I don't know if you can help me out with that and having read the book, but um, it's the point where he's, going into all of the feelings that he's ever had. And he's trying to pinpoint some, the people that he was resentful of and all the people he hated and all, he's trying to get everything out, right? It's, uh, it sounds like quite a process, but he was saying that he realized that after so much time of self-medication that he actually had a lot of lingering feelings early on when his mother was sick that he was very resentful of her because she took up the spotlight that thought that he thought should be on him. Yes. And he, at this point, he's too young to understand either way or another. But when he went back into introspection mode, it was like, I did hold a lot of rage just towards my mother for something that was completely out of her control and, you know, reasonably it was out of his control as well. It's just a feeling. Like it's not something that it's like, this is right or wrong. This is just how we feel. I mean, we've all been resentful at some of our loved ones for taking up more time on certain things, even though it's it's not their fault and it's it's not our fault for feeling that way. So it's it's interesting that you say that because that, that reminded me of that situation where it's like, holy, holy, like we people do deserve the right to be resentful you know well the irony is or the coincidence is when i started my recovery that was the first thing i uncovered too it wasn't resentment it was survivor's guilt that's an interesting concept that she died and i didn't and then i did resent her but more that in a selfish way because she gave me the room to say well i'm not going to worry about her so much because she's you know coddling me and saying she's fine I resented that. Like, why didn't she give me the full truth? Why didn't she sort of shake me out of my cage so that I would spend more time thinking about her and, you know, traveling back and forth and spending time with her in her last couple of months that she was alive? Ridiculous that I would make that her fault, but that I, that was the way I felt. Like the survivor's guilt is surviving, but also the resentment that, you know, why didn't you tell me you were worse off? Why did you deprive me of being there in your last days or your last hours? Right. Um, yeah, and that's I, that was bottled. That was part of what I was medicating against. And there's no way I would have recognized that, you know, on my own. It's, yeah, but it's valid. When you're on autopilot, I mean, so much of our lives is autopilot, whether it be in the car or certain situations. We're a lot of times on autopilot until we decide to turn the lights on inward. Yeah. Right? So it's 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 interesting. Oh, for sure. And that's, that's when I, I say in my class, that's when yoga gets interesting is – when you can turn off autopilot and you can start to clear away the, the monkey mind and the things that you obsess on because you're avoiding, like we're all avoiding something. We're all either living in the past or hoping or yearning for the future to, to avoid whatever is confronting us. And then when you can start to move down those hallways that you didn't see before and start to try some of those doors and 
open the door and see what the demon is behind it, that's that's when yoga gets really interesting. And like, like I say, that's when I decided I was going to be a teacher. It's when I started to pop open some of those doors and it was like, whoa. Right, right. How long was that there? <laughs> you know? Definitely. Yeah. How long have you been alcohol free? Uh, my last drink was my birthday in 2011, so March 30th, 2011. Gotcha. And how do you feel about the recovery process? And because some people are loyal to the 12 steps, there's different methodologies. What is your relationship to the recovery process? Do you consider yourself in recovery? Well, I mean, that's another can of worms. That's a whole other podcast. But uh, first of all, there's a myth that if you just offer someone recovery, then they would just recover. Like it's natural. I'm going to take you to rehab and you're going to recover. And that's not the case for anybody. If you're not at that point in your life where it's, this is live or die, I have to do this. Like that's not an option anymore. Um, chances are it's not going to succeed. Right. So there's lots. Of, I went crashing through rock bottom, several of them where everyone would have said, no, this is it. This He's got to wake up from this. This has to be it. And, you know, crashing a car, getting a drunk driving uh, charge, and then a year later getting a roadside suspension for another six months. And I'm like, this has got to be it, right? It's got to be it. And it was another year. It was still another year before. I was like, <sighs> but when I decided to quit, which is a, a great story to tell, but when I decided to quit, um, I had support. I was working in Kelowna. I was living in Kelowna at the time. And the boss I had had just recently quit drinking about a year earlier. Okay. And so he was a great resource. Absolutely. And so they put me in touch with the, the benefits company uh, right away for, you know, what their program would be. And then he said, I want you to try 12 steps. I want you to try Alcohol- Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, you know, whatever, anything. And so... But you were on board at that I point. I was on board. Mm-hmm. And with an open mind and an open heart, I went to two meetings, and it just did not appeal to me. Right. I just, I, it just, there was two things about it that I didn't agree with. And in hindsight, one of them was actually not a great opinion of mine. But at the time, I didn't like how they abdicated, like, it's not my fault. Like, I'm going to hand everything over to Jesus, and he's going to run my life now. Right. What? Um, yeah. That's like, the... It's it's not it's not religious based, but it's it's like Jesus take the wheel. Like it's it's having the thought like the belief in a higher power to help you through something that's uncontrollable to you. So it's not as simple. There's no accountability in rehab. There well, absolutely is. There's a there step is, where it's, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. There is a step where it's accountable where you have to start to make amends. But in the beginning, it's 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 more faith based, and nothing against faith or religion. Yeah, but or, what if you're not Christian? Well, or what if you are a scientific mind and you want strategies? Like no I, doubt. You know, so I did two meetings. I gave it a decent effort. And the other thing that bothered me about it at the time, which in hindsight was really a terrible attitude of mine, was um, there was a couple of people there that were had been coming for 40 years. And I thought, even with cancer after five years, they let me go. Like, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm a cancer survivor. I'm not still a cancer patient. But... After moving into yoga, I realized that was their tribe. That was their community, which is what we're all seeking in, in yoga. That's, that's the, the like-minded people getting together, creating that energy. That's what they were doing in their meetings, and I just didn't see it at the time. So I, I didn't have a great opinion about it at the time. I felt like, you know, like after a while, you got to say, 
you're healed or you, you can cope now, you can go move on. Um, but I went through interior health with one-on-one counseling and group therapy. And that was where they asked the real tough questions. Okay, like you're sober today, what's going to happen tomorrow when next time you get bad news? When you have that car accident or you get laid off or somebody else gets sick, like what's your strategy? Because the last time it was drink yourself to death. And so that the approach where it's like, right, okay. I need to be smart about this. I need to put my mind into this. I need to be on board. That was way more helpful for me personally, was that, that science and, and intellectual critical thinking way of doing yeah, it. No. Um, and then it helped that I was doing yoga for a hobby, and that sort of moved closer to a daily practice. Um, starting as a fitness strategy, but then really moving into holistic meditation, holding space, being able to have time and just like reflect. And that's, that's when yoga really started to, to, to pitch in and help out. But yeah, the, the sobriety, like the cancer, the outcome is you want to be sober or you want to be cancer free. But there's never, nobody ever says to you, and then what if? What if you do survive? What if you do get sober? Like, nobody's ever dealt with the demons yet. You haven't dealt with the survivor's guilt if you survive cancer, like going to an oncology unit where a bunch of people are not doing well and maybe having bad news every day. And I walk in and it's like, oh, this is great. See you later. See you next week. And, you know, like, here I am dancing around the hallways with my good news. And I look around and it's like, why me? Why not them? You know, that there's always that aspect of cancer survivor, but that's also getting sober. You get the same, same, this is the outcome I wanted. Now what? Okay. I'm, I'm sober, but I still have really terrible self-esteem. I still feel dread every day. I still feel intense sadness. I'm in depression. Like we haven't coped with any of that. That's what I was trying to avoid. Now I'm an mm. open, raw nerve. Now I'm vulnerable. And I don't have medication anymore. Now what? So that's that's where yoga really stepped in for me. It was a healing modality for you through and through. Healing, but also where you could start to have self-inquiry and you also get the tools. Even if you're unsuspecting, when you're on the yoga mat, that quiet mind, that chance to breathe and let go of the day and let go of the things that are right in the front of your mind where you can start to notice why am I always sad or why am I always like angry at this? Why does that always trigger me? And then eventually you have that breakthrough, you have that breakdown or that meltdown where it's just, you feel all the feels, you feel all the emotions even holding back and then you start to wash out of it. And it, okay, now we're starting to get closer to what this should feel like. And you start to recognize I always felt shitty about my mom because of this, or I always felt shitty about myself because of this, or I regret doing that to my wife, or I regret this, or I regret that. For me, then it moved into imposter syndrome, like, well, everyone's going to be able to see through me. They're going to see that I'm an alcoholic. They're going to see that I was a terrible human being, or whatever that means. Um, so I would keep to myself. I'd be really quiet at yoga. I wouldn't interact with anybody. I'd just be on my mat, roll it up, and leave, because I didn't want to be the imposter. We're like, you're not, you don't belong here. You're not going to get out of here. Like, it, you know, you just I'm sober, but I'm not getting better. What's going on? You know, that's that you get to start to play in those sandboxes, you know, 
that's that's when yoga kicked in for me was when I started to try those doors and open those doors and it's really interesting it's an interesting perspective that you have because recovery is so personal to so many people and there's so many different modalities that work yeah. and programs and whatnot yours sounds very much like a, a, a more logic-based approach yet you and you, you seem to have some thoughts about 12 steps that often would lead some to believe that you're more of like a harm reduction model where it's like let like let's reduce the harm and then we'll get rid of the you know get rid of the behaviors that caused it but for you like sobriety it wasn't just about reducing your drinking it was like okay i'm quitting and then now i have to figure out the rest no like, exactly. it's an interesting perspective it's an interesting way of going about it right and for some people the 12 steps offers those steps it, yeah it offers it lays out the path for you if you do this and then you do this and then you do this some people need that <clears throat> pardon me for me i needed to rely on myself it's like this is i dug this hole how do i get out of this hole mm-hmm. and i need help and i'm i need i'm gonna have critical questions i need you know, support answers. And so that, that's what worked for me. Now, was it, was it yoga or like what, what started to give you that, that self-awareness where you started to look inside and, and answer yoga. a lot of those questions? It was, it was, yeah. it was mainly yoga that, yeah. and was it, what, what aspect of it? I'm just, I'm just curious. Is it moments when you're in the positions and you're, you're breathing that you get into a meditative state? Like what, what really clicked to you and allowed you to get the self-awareness or was it just, consistent going back and starting to live in that more um, spiritual lifestyle? <coughs> Pardon me. No, it's, that is what yoga is at the end of the day. We started prior to recording, we were talking about yoga and how some of it's ego-based and some of it's just being able to do a pose perfectly for an Instagram photo. But yoga, as far as the eight limbs go, which is the path of the lineage that I'm coming from. The poses are a fraction of what yoga is about. Like the yoga, there's a a code of 10 commandments, for lack of a better word, five for the way you live your life and five for how you react to people and uh, interact with people. And then it's the breathing, the poses, and then it's the withdrawal from senses, taking away from the eyes and the ears, feeling into the poses, um, getting into intense focus. And if you can follow that path, if you can get rid of the, the obstructions and the distractions in the mind while you're on the mat, when you can feel into the pose and start to float and feel the breath and stay consistent with the breath and give yourself the opportunity in that clearing to notice, oh, shit, when you lift the veil, I apologize. No, you're allowed to swear. Okay. Yeah, 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 I've you're done cool. it a couple of times and then no, it's the good. alarm it's bells good. go off. Yeah. Fuck, but, now you're not the worst yeah, there one. You go. You're good. <laughs> so when you can lift that veil... When you can turn your attention towards the hallways and doors that you never noticed before, where you're putting all that junk, where you're tamping all that down, where you've, you've hid that stuff that, that continues to bother you, but you don't know why, that, that's how yoga gave me the opportunity to start opening those doors and have that complete mental breakdown where I'm just sobbing on the mat after a class and it's like, where did that come from? And everyone's like, it's okay, it happens. Because everyone goes through it eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that gave me the, the opportunity to realize 
that self-inquiry and self-awareness and mindfulness are the tools that I needed to, to, to really move into living the way I want to live and being the kind of person I want to be. So it's a great question. That's, you know, for most people, me included, the invitation to yoga is usually you'll get skinnier, you'll get flexible, or you lose some weight, or it's like a fitness goal. Mm-hmm. Which in the West, that's what we're all about, right? It's it's. Yeah, I want our quick, quick solutions. I want to look yeah. good in that mirror. Like that's why there's mirrors in the classroom. Like I want to look good in that mirror. I want to be able to wear my speedo or my bikini or whoever you are. Um, it's it's the external. It's the ego. It's the 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 pose is the thing, and it's it's such not that. It's yeah. It's just a fraction of what. No, you No, I'm always, I'm always fascinated where those concepts come from for people. Like the the need to to look better in the bikini. Um, it's it's all usually rooted in insecurity, in lack of self-awareness. Precisely, um, yeah. And I think um, the further we go through the world and um, as years will go by now, I think that meditation will start, and yoga, we're already seeing it, the, the amount of studios that are popping up, but things like yoga and mindfulness and meditation, I think they'll come to light more and um, we'll see more studios of literally just straight meditation studios and things like that. I I think that more people are opening their minds to that aspect of it. And I'm so, I'm, I'm really happy to see it because I think more people need to go on that path of self-awareness and discovering what it is for them and and, and how they achieve it. For some people, it's meditation. For some people, it's yoga. For some people, it's going to the gym. For some people, it's reading. And I, I think as long as we find that thing that allows us to, to look inside and find out who we truly are, what we truly want, I think it's it, it's super powerful. And it's it's always nice to hear where it clicked for, for somebody. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it and it comes to mind again because Netflix just released that, that Bikram documentary. I just watched that, yeah. and Interesting. And so if, if you break it down to what we're just talking about, how does he succeed? How does he get off the ground where it becomes a thing? Well, where did he start? Essentially in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, like and Beverly he's got, Hills. He's got mirrors in the, in the studio, and he's got everyone in heat, so they have to wear bikinis, and then he makes it all about the bodies. you got to get skinny. What's the best food? No food. He's got these chants in class. What's the best food? No food. And it's all about, I want you to look good for me. He's got look his little throne with the air conditioning in coming his, down. His speedo. And he turned 26 Hatha poses, which are legitimate, beautiful yoga poses. But he turned those 26 with the heat and a couple of breathing exercises into California dreaming. I want you guys to have this fit body. And, and it's, it's his system. When it's, it's, I think he unsuccessfully tried to patent his system. Oh, he did, and he tried to sue Raquel Welch because she put out a, a fitness video, essentially copying copying his routine in the '80s. She put that out. He tried to sue her for, but they're half the poses. They belong. They to belong the, to the, the history. The, the like. history. Yeah, it's it's hilarious. And the people at the end of the documentary saying, "No, Bikram saved my life," and it, no, Bikram didn't save your life. You might have lost four hundred pounds because of Bikram and the heat, and your need to look good in that mirror. But the twenty six poses would have worked without with or without him. Yeah. Like you were getting a dose of yoga in there regardless. But that's how he takes off. Like he is in California, body beautiful, I can help. And so it was all ego. It was that's if you focus only on the poses and the Instagram and that's you know it's not yoga. At the end of the day, it's not yoga. It's but having said that, 
if you come to my class because somebody said, I want you to try this class, it, you may get fit. I'm not going to reject you. I'm not going to say you're not allowed to come in. I don't, I don't share your motive. You're not pure at heart. That's right. not the case. I want you to come in and find a mat. And then my job as a teacher is to get that virus in you. Mm-hmm. Whatever reason you came through the door, I'm going to keep you here. I'm going to get you to where you're like, oh, I need to come back. Why am I so fidgety in, at work? Why am I so fidgety in my car? Oh, I didn't go to yoga today. I got to go to yoga. That's whatever your motive is. I'll, I, my job is to to flip that and keep you coming back. So. Well, I never thought of yoga as a spiritual practice. I don't think it really clicked in with me until I was doing some Hindu philosophy reading earlier in the year. And I realized that yoga is like interwoven into that spiritual tapestry. Like it's hardwired into Hindu philosophy, which by extension is, you know, means Sikhism and, and Buddhism. A lot of those are offshoots of, of Hinduism largely. So it, it really was like, oh, wow. And, and I, I think at that time I was starting to go to the studio. So I was going to your classes and Micheline's classes. And I was starting to realize that I think that's kind of what made it click for me actually, because I, I've done so many athletic endeavors that I like, I know how to get into shape and I know, you know, I can just go for a run or I can go play hockey or I can go play basketball. Like I, that was never a mystery. I think though, and I don't know if a lot of people share this with me or if, if you have an opinion on this, but I think when we go to the gym, we see the results in our bodies and it's very, it almost feels like artificial after a certain period where it's just like, okay, I'm just doing this to get big. And people, I think, look like I definitely looked at yoga like that. I would go into a yoga class or I would see someone on Instagram or Facebook that was into yoga. And I'd be like, well, you know, they don't really have, they're not uh, like that toned or they don't have a lot of muscle mass. And like, oh, that person's like older or this person's overweight. It's kind of like, does this really work? And I, I was completely missing the point. Missing the goal, yeah. Yoga, it's the point of it is not to get these big burly muscles or to get toned or to, it has nothing to do with that. Like the body is so much different. Like when you think about yoga and the body, it's not about yoga and sculpting the body. It's about going inside it and realizing that it's just an engine for larger spiritual expansion. It's amazing actually. No, and and in this day and age, of course, we just talked earlier about how the internet is a toxic place for anything. But the people that aren't Instagram worthy, the comments they get, like the, the bigger women that, that put beautiful yoga poses online trying to expand the tent mm-hmm. and the comments they get for just being healthy and happy is insane. Like they're like, not worthy to be in this pose or in these clothes. Like that's insane. Like, yeah. I do like to throw curveballs though because sure, I'm, sure. I'm uh so allow me to play devil's advocate here because I like that. I'm, I want to dig deeper into that comment about the internet is a toxic place because I'm always curious on the thought of social media. And my curveball is, is social media actually the root of the problems that we hear, the negative comments, the, the slander, the hate, or is social media just exposing who people really are because it gives them a platform to do so? So I don't know that you separate the two. I don't know if I could ever have said to somebody, well, I was, I was drinking last night, so I'm sorry I pulled out that gun and shot you. I wouldn't have done that if I was, wasn't drunk. Or I w- wouldn't have never been racist if I hadn't been drunk last night. Those aren't in me. So I don't know that 
you could be online, even if nobody knows who you are, and say terrible, hurtful things and say, well, that wasn't me. That was a persona or that was banter. I don't. Well, I don't, understand. That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm okay. not saying the person is denying what kind of person. Like if I'm if I'm online and saying terrible things about you and your yoga poses, and then I go into the real world and somebody calls it, oh, that wasn't me. That was I was just online. Not a denial necessarily. I'm just saying the the sheer idea that social media or the internet is causing people to be hateful and to spread these words oh, no, I, and I, to be toxic. I, I don't think it's... Is it causing it or is it just the current platform that people are on the internet and social media where they're able to, like I said, expose what's actually inside of them, the the hate and the venom. And it, it is sad to see. I'm not going to yeah. say that it isn't. It's just, I'm always fascinated by, is it is it the root of the problem or is it just exposing who people really are no, in those I, moments. No, I honestly think it's a megaphone where people That's amplify. That's a great analogy. People amplify what's already in their heart. Um, and I, I, as far as Twitter's gone, I'm done. Like I was an early adopter. At my age, I was, you know, first on Facebook, first on Twitter. When Twitter was the first year, first two years of Twitter, you could actually engage. Like I had um, back and forth with Elliot Friedman where I actually wound up in one of his 30, 31 Thoughts columns. Really? Yeah. Interesting. But, it, but it, was, it was literally, hey, Elliot, I really liked your, you know, your column. Have you ever considered this? And it was a discussion about could you not mic referees in an NHL game? And he said, well, I don't think that's feasible. And then I said, well, I watch international rugby. The ref's mic is part of the field of play. Like he talks to the players, everyone in the stands hears the conversation. They talk to the video review review booth. Everyone is always in constant awareness of what's going on and why the play was stopped and what they're looking at. And he actually put that in his column. Without that platform, I never would have met him. I never would have had that conversation. And there was other examples of that. But it very quickly turned into a cesspool which I, I'm done with. And, and even on Facebook, I find Facebook affects me, and I don't blame the platform for that, but it, it changes my mood. It alters me mm-hmm. when I'm on there. Um, and Instagram, the same. Like I'm there because I have a business, and I need to connect with people as a business person. But as far as a positive role in my life, I, don't, it's, I find it just it drags me down. And it, it, I don't blame anything except me. I, that's my reaction to it. And so I just avoid it as much as I <laughs> no, can. No, and, and absolutely. And I always respect people that do like cleanses and things like that, that um, decide that, oh, like I'm going to be. Cleanses? Yeah, digital okay, cleanses. Cool. Like, just just clarify. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's good. Um, like social media cleanses where they're like, okay, I'm not going to be on one of these platforms for a month. And it's like, it's it's great if, if that's what you uh, think is going to be good for you at the time. Um, and I, I think that's I think that's amazing. I think it's a personal, it, it, it it's personal for everybody what they do on social media, how they how they u- utilize it. I'm very similar from your perspective. I I use it mainly for business. I actually haven't really used social media um, for longer than thirty minutes, maybe a day, for my personal self in five to six years. Mm. So for my personal gain, like seeing what everybody else is doing reading stories that are interesting to me. I use it for business from for 
easily hours a day to see what consumers are thinking about for posting my stuff, delivering content. I think it's a wonderful tool for that. Um, well, the backbone of some of these platforms now, like with my website and, and my yeah. blog, I can go in and instantly see analytics that, okay, I reached this many people, but I didn't because only a couple of people opened the email or only a couple of people clicked on it. I didn't get any comments. Like that, that hyper-awareness and being able to tailor the message is amazing. But, you know, the, the need to close comments on sites because, like, the, the vitriol and the hatred that shows up for you know, the simplest things. And I, and I find people dig their own graves with the hate. So I'm always curious about, uh, um, like areas where comments are closed and things like that. And obviously there's political reasons as well. I mean, in, in debates, comments were closed on YouTube for the Canadian elections and things like that. But just in general, when pages close comments, it's, um, it's always intriguing to me because I feel like everyone who's commented anything negative or anything in general is um, they're making their own bed at the end of the day, right? Right. And they're, they've, they've basically gone and put themselves out there and that's going to be there forever for their family to see, for their ki- future children to see, for their future grandchildren to see, for their future employers to see, whatever it is. So it's, it's always intriguing. But my challenge I always give to people before they um, go on social media cleanses because the common thing I get to people is, from people is, oh, it's uh, it's such a negative place. Like all I see is bad news, bad news, bad news. And I say, well, social media's algorithms are built to <sighs> show you what you want to see. What you've been interested in, yeah. And what you've constantly been reading and looking at. I said, I challenge you for the next week to only look at positive, happy things. And I said, you'll find that social media starts to tailor more to that. To that and do the behavior that means if somebody's constantly posting negative things, unfollow them temporarily. You don't have to unfriend them, unfollow them temporarily so it doesn't show up on your feed anymore. Right. There's little sections where you can say, stop showing me things like this. You can absolutely do that. And then start liking and commenting and engaging with the more positive stories. And you'll start to see how your feed increases, but more so when people are done that kind of cleanse or practice, I like to say, okay, now do the same thing in your real life. Yeah, exactly. So you'll find well, yeah, you, it's easier on the internet. You know, you like find it's, it, there's you're an just algorithm, turning it off. Or there's an algorithm it built for social media, but the same algorithm is built for your life. It's called your mind and it's called what you surround yourself with. And yeah. I find it's very interesting to go out and be like, okay, I, I'm going to get what I'm putting in and what, what I'm liking and what I'm watching and what I'm following. You find what you're looking for in life and social media and anything. Well, and it draws it all the way back to the yoga studio, which is, in the end, if you're trying to build a community, which we are, it's a gathering of like-minded people that support each other's positivity, support each other's journey through the eight limbs, um, support each other. If somebody has a meltdown, everyone's there for them or gives them the space, creates the space for them to feel safe. Like, in the end, you've just described what a bridge club is or what a church is or what a yoga studio is. It's just that ability to find and hold a space for each other. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting too. like, as a kind of counter to what you're saying, I think though, what can be difficult is even on positive stories, there's a plethora of negative comments the trolls. because if someone is saying something positive, there's gotta be some asshole there to take the fire away. And f- at least in my relationship with social media, what I've noticed is if I'm not careful, I get carried away in those comments. 
if I see someone that's spreading hate or whatever, I feel the need to like correct it because it's like my own ego doing its thing. And then I get caught up in my own ego by trying to f almost fix someone else or tell them that they're wrong or whatever it is. And it always comes from a good place. Like, I don't think we should be using social media, like you said, like, cause you can totally, you know, be positive on there. I just worry about like what it does to people without them even knowing. And until I went inwards using yoga and using meditation and journaling and things like that, I didn't realize what my relationship with social media actually was. Cause it was kind of like, you know, I definitely did that thing where it's like you unfollow people and unfollow certain groups and whatever. The problem is though, is like those negative comments find their way into your stuff. Like, it's like, isn't that funny? Man, I can't escape this sometimes. I started following ass. something on Facebook to do with Vernon because there was a couple of comments, comments on there where somebody said, where's a great place to do yoga? Oh, they tagged you. They didn't tag me, but people tagged the studio. Mm. And one such re re recommendation request, I think a dozen people all mentioned our studio. Right. So I started following the forum and I had to quickly unfollow because I was really stunned at, like you say, how many people with their name and image and avatar would go on there and whatever the subject was, they would flip it. So eventually they're talking about the homeless people in Vernon. And oh, it, man. And eventually it would flip to it's where crazy. it's like haul them up, put them in fences out in the industrial park, and they, they're not allowed out of those fences until they do this, this, and this. And you're talking about internment camps. You're talking like. about caging people. Like, And they're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. There's like pitchforks and flames and these are human beings. Is that the Vernon and area community? I forum? wasn't going to name it because I, you know, people. I had to probably recognize the same thing because it has its like but, pluses. I get mentioned in those groups yeah. for realtor recommendations. Man, it's, it's that's a dark place. It's the darkest of place. It always leads back to homelessness homeless. for some reason. Whatever the comment is, where can Vernon? I get my haircut? Oh, don't go here because there's homeless. Homeless, let's get them. Like, yeah. What? Oh, and you're right. It's it is a, and that's why I really like that analogy. It's a it's a megaphone for those things because mm -hmm. it's it's stuff that's been happening generationally. Those kinds of conversations, hidden hidden, hidden. groups at yeah. the coffee shops or whatever it mm. is. Um, you know, your your, gran old, your grandparents with a cup of coffee around the, the table, kind of thing, you know, talking the, the old, about the same the thing. Gentlemen, the old guys. This is think they must be talking about their grandkids or something. No, they're talking about no, they're talking about problems. homeless people. Yeah. Yeah. They are, and the and that's the thing. Now that it's a megaphone, and that's what I mean about exposing. It exposes um, the conversations that people really are having, and I, I think long term, I like to. I like to bet on the the positive and the positive of humans. And I think long-term it's going to expose people more and more. And almost if people want to go anywhere or do anything positive with their life, they're going to have to be more positive. And it's yeah. going to force people into being better people, into being more self-aware, into looking inside because that megaphone is going to be everywhere they look. Yeah. And everywhere they go. And I think it's something you eventually age out of most humans, most civilized human beings probably age out of that. I want to draw attention to myself, so I'm going to be a troll. I think most people recognize eventually they'll now grow it, but well, they the, can't outgrow the footprint anymore. And let's, and let's, mm. the, the thing stuff is, I let's, did when I was 20 that I regret yeah. is lost to the past. Well, I mean, but, but nowadays the, it's not. Let's, let's just look. I don't necessarily, and outgrow, I, I assume you're meaning from the from the mental capacity, not necessarily from the age capacity, because I just yes, that's what I meant. You, yeah, you mature out of it. Yeah. You absolutely, because I mean, I mean, Facebook, for example, the 
the largest amount of user Facebook users are between age between 50 and 70 right now. They live on that platform, yeah. whereas uh, everyone else has trickled to others. But the the psychology of trolls is what's always fascinated me. Um, the people that feel the need to to spread venom and hate and negativity. It's, mm-hmm. it's a topic that's always fascinated me. It's like you said, it, it could be attention seeking. It could be stemmed from insecurity. It could be just them and their own personal unhappiness trying to project that onto the world around them as well. 100%. Mm-hmm. Those are I'm all unhappy three and reasons, I'm going yeah. to show everybody else that I'm happy as well. And you, I've, I've started to just come from a perspective of just sheer and other, utter like, sympathy for them i just i really just start to feel bad for them at one point because i'm like wow like you must be really unhappy in this situation you must be really really unhappy to be spreading um spreading that kind of negativity and hate into the world and that being the like you said uh the so living on social media like being on there all the time hours a day and constantly being in in comments that you're saying you want to avoid shelby but like Mm. constantly being in there and and putting your two cents in that's always negative arguing with somebody you don't even know it's it's become your lifestyle because of your own personal unhappiness and whether it's lack of self-awareness lack of achievement something that could have happened in your life i mean mental health is a totally other topic to go into but again it's i I i've started to come at it from a sympathetic perspective because it's it's just it, it, it is fascinating to me where it comes from for every day, for every person. But it's, it's beautiful because you've opened that space in your heart to recognize that, right? Instead of just saying, well, that guy's a Nazi or that guy's an asshole. Why? It's because he doesn't have a tribe. He doesn't have a connection. He, he, he is in pain. He's in a basement somewhere. This, his community is online. He's never been face-to-face with them. And he's just suffering. You're right. Like when you can look at it from that point of view, but same for the homeless, you got to look at that, that God Bless them, they're suffering. And if they want to be on drugs or drunk, who would want to sleep in the rain on a concrete sidewalk if they weren't drunk or they weren't high? Like, could you be sober and do that? Like, that would be suffering beyond you can even imagine. So let them have it. Like, let, like until we figure out what where they're going and what they're going to do. for now, let's just, just, just it give be. them the clean needles and give them a meal and just leave them alone. That's like, a, and that's the thing. There's a, there's, there's a, political connotation with that topic that is it's a pain it seems to be that every every potential solution that comes out has its own has its own consequences and negativities that people don't think about and political you see that right now and what's going on in alberta where they're going to cut six thousand jobs and 600 nursing jobs and so where did people in the 50s or the 40s or pick a time where did they go if they were sick there was a hospital bed for them. And sick mentally or sick physically, they were there till they were well. And now I've got students that have had knee replacements where 36 hours after surgery, they're like, get out, we need the bed. We'll have somebody check on you at home. Or get out, you've got your meds. Go where you're going to go. Well, where, where, where am I going to go? Like, yeah. now I'm on the street. Like, and there's no resources. We're drawing resources away from everything. We're slashing budgets. We're like... You got to start at the base of the problem. Totally, mm. but there, and the thing for me though is there's got to be a form of accountability accountability on a person to person level. I feel like the the sheer accountability and will willpower of those people in the 40s and 50s that you talk about is so different from today. And I mean, I'm I'm so like I'm overjoyed. I'm 
so happy that we're talking more about things like mental health and uh, mindfulness and uh, the true causes of these issues. And the true costs. But People yeah, used to pay taxes. Yeah. And <laughs> there used to be an expectation. You'd pay taxes and there would be roads and schools yeah, and hospitals. People see and, taxes as theft and it's yeah. like, dude, come on. You're missing the plot. It's yeah. no, and it I gets mean, ridiculous. Exactly. Heck, at, the, at that point, like, again, that's another topic. But like, I, I'd give up 98% of my income if, I mean, if I had more of a say in where it was spent yeah. and everything like yeah. that. But I would straight up like... If I had more of a, I don't mind giving it away because I still see, we, I get to live in the benefits of the society. But I mean, I would literally, if I had a little bit more of a say in Canada's financial statement, I would be happy to give away 98% of my revenue. But again, I'm overjoyed that we're ha talking, having these conversations about mental health and everything. My issue is that the other aspect of having these conversations and being able to talk about this more is that we're also flowing towards the aspect of more excuses now. We've opened the door to more excuses, more excuses for people not to become accountable, not to become mindful, not to go deep inside anymore because we've added more labels that are almost scapegoats for people to, oh, it's it's, it's not me, it's just this. Yep. It's just this. It's not, it's not what's going on inside of me, it's something that's happening to me, which now there's... There's, there's truth in all aspects, but there is that form of accountability and self-awareness that I would love to just see more of. And whether it's, like I said, through yoga, through uh, going to the gym, through working out, to reading, whatever aspect people can find it in, I think it's great. I mean, for me personally, you've you've said some personal stuff. I'll, I'll throw some out there as well. My form of accountability was when I got arrested for shoplifting at Walmart at one point. Shortly after, I did something else stupid that I could have gotten arrested for, but the cops let me off as well. But yeah, I was fortunate enough. They didn't press charges. The police didn't do anything more. I just got to the point in my life where I was like, I was blaming everything and everything else that was happening to me, not something that was happening from within me. And I yeah. just stopped and I just said at one point, I was like, everything from now on is my choice, my decision, my fault, good or bad. And I'm accountable and these are all my choices and this is all me. And I think the more accountable we can become as individuals, as a society, the better we'll see things. I mean, Shelby and I had conversations. We just talked about politics. We had a conversation about how no politicians are held accountable to anything they're doing. There's no accountability at the political level. And I think accountability as a whole. If, if there was a drug I could give everybody, it would be accountability. <laughs> but it's hard to be in a space to, to, to let people be accountable because we're in a pretty unforgiving society. No doubt. No doubt. And the battle lines are drawn. That's the other part. But, you know, God bless you that, you know, you know, eventually you keep saying, well, this is happening to me. Why does this keep happening to me? Why does this keep happening to me? Well, first of all, it's your actions, but it's also what you're attracting. What, what is that aura you're putting out? What's that energy you're putting out? You know, and again, God bless you that you didn't have the ultimate um, consequence that you got to grow from it. And same with me. I, I'm I'm blessed that now people recognize if I say I've been depressed or I say I have panic attacks and I still do. If I say I have anxiety, people know what that means now. It's not a, it's not a cold you're going to catch from me. You don't have to Absolutely. avoid me. It's just oh, I can have empathy for you. I go through that too. Like. That you can have an honest conversation yeah. like that nowadays. Mm -hmm. so. No, and 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 to your point, Shelley, I absolutely, I I agree with you. I think we we don't live in a society where 
as as much as we are talking about having more conversations about panic attacks, about depressions, we live in a society where, I mean, let's just look. How many times has this happened even today? You see somebody you haven't seen in a few days, haven't seen in a little while or whatever it is. What's your first conversation? Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks. That's it. There's no more talk further. And I found, especially like operating a business, everybody's always, oh, how's business? And the most common answer that is like almost a reflex, but anyone you ask, is always going to be like, oh yeah, good. Good. Busy. And I'm just- Yeah, busy. Yeah. Busy. Exactly. Busy is so common. And I've just stopped and I've thought at one point, especially this year, because I've had a really stressful year on the business end. Business end, I mean, physical injuries and personal end, whatever it is, I've had some stresses. That doesn't mean I'm unhappy. That doesn't mean I'm going to- crawl under a rock and feel sorry for myself, but I have had some stresses. And the area of town we're in. And I don't mind. We've got challenges too. Like you want to be there, but okay, well, I got to accept the challenges. And am I going to complain about it? Am I going to be violent to people about it? Or am I just going to be the best I can? So we put out our karma coat rack. And this year we thought twice about it. Like, do we put out this coat rack and draw some of that negativity out of the people around us? And so far it's been good. You know, we're Leave a coat, take a coat. If you need a coat, help yourself. Like That's awesome. You know, just to be able to put that energy onto the street and see if it comes back. Karma see coat. if it comes back to, you know, people like, I always heard about that studio and they do the karma coats. I'm going to try. If I'm going to try yoga, I'm going to try it there. Or, you know, just send that vibe out, send that energy good, out yeah. and see what comes back. Yeah. You know. No, and I, and I think that's... I really do. I think that's I think that's wonderful, and I think more people need to start having um, the conversation, being open to having the conversation. Like when people ask me now, "How's business?" I say, "Well, you like I'm just straight up honest how it is in that situation." Oh, you know, we've had a good week. Oh, it's been a rough week, but you know, to be honest, it's been a stressful year. Like especially if I haven't seen the person in a few months, and I have no problem it, saying that because isn't it funny that it evolves too, where, yeah. you know, people come through the door like, how's it going? I said, well, you know what? It's Christmas. It's, it's kind of tough. There's, we're competing with kids pageants and potlucks and lunches at work. And they're like, oh, you know what? I was going to bring a friend or, and then all of a sudden it's like an actual honest conversation. And you have a yeah. real conversation all of a sudden instead of yeah. the, the bullshit small talk that is two people lying to themselves. And it's, it's interesting to have more people open up because as soon as you let your walls down, you almost give the other person permission to let theirs down mm-hmm. as well. And it's being vulnerable. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And I think it's, yeah, vulnerability. That's, that's huge. And I think it's something we just need to um, be more comfortable with without fear of being judged in general. Like people love the vulnerability and the honesty. They respect it so much. Yeah. And if they don't, then they're not in a place in their own self to be able to hear hear that or be ready for that. And and that's okay. They're they're on their own path. But just being comfortable with yourself and and putting putting yourself out there, how amazing it feels. Like I can't tell you how much better I feel in those conversations. Now I get a little bit of a temporarily temporary escapism every time I I have a hey, how are you conversation with somebody because I'm vulnerable about how I actually am and I get to talk through what's going on in my life with the other person for real yeah. and not just sticking a fake, oh, I'm good, how are you, Band-Aid on it and and holding in the rest and not to obviously overwhelm the person you're with but just to be honest because whatever it is, people, whether I'm going to have future successes in my life and people are going to see that and be like, oh, wow, like, you know, he got pretty lucky or he had, a, he had a good thing going. Like, 
oh, that was pretty much overnight, hey, and not realizing that, <laughs> oh, wait, no, I had a conversation with him last year. He was struggling, so he must have really flipped things around, whatever it was. So it, it's important to share that journey and, sh- and share your individual journey with, with people, I find, because that's how we can relate to each other now. Oh, without a doubt. And that's so when I direct people to my blog, it's always kind of, I see it through their eyes, so I, I always understand there's a lot of information there. I'm like, I've been exposed, and some people consider it overexposed, but that's fine. I've chosen to put it out there as an olive branch to somebody for that conversation, you know, or, you know, oh, geez, you really had it bad there for a while. And it's like, no, it, you know, it was a journey. And then it's always like, well, I was never as bad as you, but what would you do if? And, okay, now we would never have had this conversation, you know, like, well, what would I do? Like, okay, well, I'll tell you what. If you want to sit down, I'll tell you. So, But that never would happen without that blog. And so the same as you, I think I'm reaping the benefits of being vulnerable. And you're an open wound sometimes. People can take advantage of vulnerability. But overall, if you're authentic, I think... If you don't hear it, though, it doesn't bother you. And you know what? If you're authentic, it's the only way to live, I think. So. I, absolutely. Absolutely. So what what is your relationship to vulnerability moving forward? Like, how has that changed over the years since you've been an instructor, like before you were an instructor and now you are the instructor? Like, how does vulnerability guide what you want to do in yoga? Since about 2015, when I actually finally opened those doors and started to deal with the emotions and the the things I was avoiding, where I think we all live in that where, you know, if I just get that next job or if I just get a really great apartment or I get that new haircut or I get the girlfriend or I plan that trip, then everything will be better. And, you know, 10, 15 years can go by and it's like nothing's better. Move to a new town. Well, what happened? All the problems moved with you. You're not dealing with the root cause. Just like surviving cancer and, okay, now what? You told me this was the finish line. I've not even started the race yet. Or you know, sobriety. Okay, well, I got to the finish line. Oh, no, I haven't even started the race yet. So the same for me was once I started to clear the decks and clear that clutter away and realize, okay, A, my story is going to help people, but also that means being vulnerable. That means being authentic and open and telling the story. Once you've chosen that path, like, I mean, I can't put the genie back in the bottle, the, the blog's out there. The story's out there, you know. I don't think I'm ever running for office because <laughs> the demons and the and the and the skeletons are all already out. But uh, I, I don't. There's, I don't see a path backwards. I don't see any way where I wouldn't be authentic. And again, like I say, there's pain involved in that. People can take advantage of it sometimes. But it's. I if I'm not authentic, then I don't feel good about myself. So. And so answer honestly. Be honest with people. And I, I mean, I'm not a saint. I'm not like a, there's still, you know, the times you take advantage of gossip when you shouldn't or the times where, you know, like the decision I make wasn't really a holistic decision. I, you know, I could have probably not done that or I should have not done that. Those, we are all human. We have frailties. But if the, if the path is going in this direction, I'm always moving in that direction. If you might fall off the path, but you still get back on it. So. So what do you say to someone that's perhaps not sure about yoga or let's take someone who is say 60 years old that maybe has a bad hip or something like that. And they just, they see all these, you know, infomercials and 
Instagram posts and all this, all these like bendy people and they think it's like beyond them. Uh, where do people start if they want to get involved in yoga? This, this podcast is is great because it's a story, um, your story, but it's also is a total plug for yoga. So let's just continue it. Like wh- where do people get started? So I'm passionate about this. Um, if you come to see me, if you walk in the door and I'm in the studio, you're going to see somebody who's 10, maybe 15 pounds overweight, um, 55 years old. It's, I'm, I'm the poster child for the antidote to Instagram. Like, if you come see me, I've got a broken body. I can relate to your broken body. I know how hard it is to come through the door. I know how much people fear walking through a yoga studio door. The, I'm not going to know the secret handshakes. I'm not going to know the right clothes to wear. I, I don't know if it's a religion or not, or if it's a cult or not. All those things that circulate like yoga, yoga, well, isn't that crazy? It's like when you can get the courage to come through the door, I'll meet you halfway, I'll meet you there. And I can prove to you that you don't have to be bendy and you don't have to have complete flexibility and you don't have to be able to do a headstand or handstand and you don't even have to wear the right clothes. It's it just I'll put you on a mat and you can start to breathe and if that's what you get through that day that's what you get through, but we can start that path. It's it, I'm I'm so passionate about this that the way the West treats everything is ideal body ideal body ideal body and yoga is not about the ideal body. The yoga can help you heal. Yoga can make you better than when you started. And it can make you fit. It, it absolutely can make can. you fit. Yeah, if that's your journey and you and that's your path, it'll take you there. But it's not. It's not the end. It's not the finish line. Right. Yoga. There's no finish line. There's always another pose or a, an extra part of that pose or a bind from that pose. Or am I still breathing in this pose? There's always the next challenge. Like is, there's no. If I just get this, I'm done. I succeeded. No, we'll take you to the next step. And so if you get someone that's brand new and I think like, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm pretty much an addict on Google sometimes where I'm like looking into something new or whatever. I'm like, I go to reviews or I go like pros and cons or whatever it is. If you're speaking with someone and they know you're passionate about yoga and, and you know, they're you know contemplating going to a class, what would you say are the purported benefits, especially keeping in mind that most people don't have that spiritual backdrop of what yoga actually is and, and uh, w- what you can discover about yourself. But how would you, what kind of benefits would you say can be most accessible for those people? Right off the bat, if you've never done yoga before and you come through the door, if you get nothing outside of that class, I hope it is that you start to breathe. So many of us are hypertense. So many of us hold breath in the chest or we breathe into the throat and we're constricted and our diaphragm's constricted and we're holding our bellies in because we feel fat and we just don't breathe enough. And if you stand next to people and they don't notice that you're noticing and you hear the way they breathe and it's like, (laughs) and that's resting breath. Like if you do nothing else, if you can come into a yoga class with a loose waistband and a loose shirt and lay on a mat and just start breathing, that's success. That's, that's, a, that's, that's a, a good class. That's a good class. If you can just unlock and get the breath into your lungs and breathe consistently for an hour, or an hour and a half, God bless you. That's, that's yoga. That's your first yoga class. If you can do that, that's, you've succeeded. You're on the way. 
Just and it's challenging. Like that class we did yesterday with you, I was struggling to keep up on the breast side or you're like, you do the move. Cause I think I'm still in that mode sometimes where it's like, I'm trying to get the moves and I'm like, oh, am I doing this right? And I forget about the breath. I'm like, oh, he hasn't even said exhale yet, but I've already <laughs> exhaled and I'm inhaling back in. I've lost that connection. So it's yeah. like, it's interesting. It's difficult, but that's, that's a good way to put it. But it simplifies it. For sure. But the other side of that, the flip side, and I just, I was away at, in Cranbrook at a funeral here a couple weeks ago. And the conversation I had with so many people when they find out what I do is don't walk into a studio expecting fireworks and um, that you found your home. You may not. You may walk in there and you may have a terrible experience. You may not connect with the teacher. It may be the wrong style of class. You may your dislocate first class. your shoulder. You may dislocate your shoulder in a handstand. <laughs> That doesn't mean yoga is not for you. I encourage you to try another teacher, go to another studio, because eventually you'll be laying in Shavasana and you'll say, yeah, I found it. This That's is, why. This is, this is my home or this, this is where I feel safe. Or, and it may be in a Bikram studio. It may be in 40 degree, 41 degree heat with all these other people around you where it looks like they're doing CrossFit and they're grunting and they're groaning and they're straining and they're looking in the mirror. And maybe at, on that day, that's what you were looking for. And you may groove to that. And you may start a yoga journey from a complete back alley like that. Or you may walk into Tidal Elements or Vernon Yoga or Inner Light and just find, I feel safe here. And God bless you. Wherever you wind up where they feel safe, that is also critical. Don't try it once and say, oh, it didn't work for me. If you show up to a flow class that you've never done yoga before, you're not going to enjoy it. It's hard. It's hard. If somebody it's fat, man, you're, you sweat. You sweat. And if you show up to a yin class and somebody says, oh, you'll love it, you'll sleep, sleep like a baby, a yin class is like a, an RMT massage. There is nothing Relaxing. pleasant about it. <laughs> it's, it's intense. It's but you'll feel better if you can go into it and let go and breathe. You'll come out of there feeling restored, but in the moment, it's like being at the dentist chair. This is not relaxing. How do I make this relaxing? How do I make this relaxing? It's the challenge. But if somebody told you to try that class because, oh, you'll sleep like a baby, that was the wrong advice, and you're in the wrong class. There are classes like that. You can do a restorative or a meditative class where you will feel groggy when you're done. But keep exploring until you feel that sense of, okay, this is where I belong. Right. And it may not be in my class. I accept that. But somewhere along the line, you'll fi find that spot. So it's interesting you say that too, because the, when I started, I started with a vinyasa flow class and I had no idea I could sweat like that. Um, <laughs> and, and I knew that that was a possibility. I mean, when I first heard of yoga, I just thought it was just like slower, except for hot yoga, of course, you're going to sweat. Um, but when I thought about yoga, it was more just like about the poses and the stretching and, you know, the bendy people essentially. Um, but I was reading a, a book called recovery 2.0. I'm not sure if you've heard of it by Tommy Rosen. So he's, a a recovering drug addict turned yoga teacher. And he's a huge proponent. He's got a book called recovery 2.0. And he talks about his first experience on the mat. It was, you know, a friend convincing him to go. And it was, uh, I believe it was like a, a Kundalini mixed with like a, a flow class. Oh, right on. And he's like, I sweat. 
I've never sweat like that before. Like playing three hours of high intensity sport wouldn't make me sweat like that. And it was like, I was sweating out the impurities that I've been locked in for so long. And yeah, it's weird. I mean, I didn't have the same relationship to the mat, I guess that he did in terms of that transformation, but I was surprised. I was like, holy moly, this is, this is like hard work. Um, and then when I went to a yin class at first, I was like, oh, this is good. I can just like relax. I can like <laughs> do my workout and then I can go to yin. But the more I like went into it, it's like you're you're holding these poses for three, four, five, six, ten minutes. Not ten, but five or six, yeah. It's hard, man. It, like to hold it and to actually push yourself into that more flexible mode, it has a degree of difficulty that I would parallel with the vinyasa flow class, but just different. It's a different kind of difficult. Yeah. It's it's really crazy that But the lesson's the same. Exactly. If you can float, if you can let go of the resistance and how hard you're pulling against that resistance, so you're working twice as hard. If you can let go of that resistance and let go of that pull and then just soften and find the breath, then you can do the pose. But all that resistance and all that pulling, regardless of if it's yin or vinyasa or hatha, that's the hypertension and that saps all the energy and it prevents you from breathing. And that is the goal eventually is to let go of the resistance, then let go of the pull and float and then breathe. And then you can hold those poses. A headstand or a handstand for five or 10 or 30 minutes. If you're hypertense, if you're, you can't do it for 30 seconds, you'll collapse. It's just, you're done. You're done. If you can float like you would in a standing pose where you're just lifting, resisting gravity, when you can find that floating where you're not resisting and you're not pulling and you're balanced, then yoga's doing you and now, you're, now you can hold the pose. Mm. That's, that's, that's the secret sauce. That's, you know, I'm going to brute force this, clo- this pose? Well, no, there's no success in that. If I can float into it and find the sweetness of the pose and let go of the resistance, now yoga's doing you and now you're okay. Right. And the same in yin. When you can get to that point where, you know what, I'm not going to think about the tension. I'm not going to think about anything. I'm just going to find something I like about this. Focus on that. Breathe, let go. Now you can do five minutes. What does your daily yoga practice look like? That's a sore subject. That's a sore subject. I have senior teachers that say you've got to practice twice as much as you teach. Interesting. And I don't. That can be a lot, man. Well, a practice isn't restricted to 15 minutes, or sorry, an hour and a half on a mat at a scheduled time. A practice could be as much as five, 10, 15 minutes, do three or four poses that are really calling to you that day, maybe a forward fold, maybe a standing forward fold, a headstand for a few minutes. Um, You know, it's, it's... just being on the mat, getting on the mat. And I'm getting better at it. I have time in the studio between classes where I'm actually starting to do my own practice. Cool. But I always resisted that. I always thought, well, I need to be able to let go. I need to be able to hear somebody else's voice so I can forget about my thoughts. And it's not that. It's just being on the mat and just making that time and doing three or four poses. If it takes 15 minutes, you know, just have a practice. And when I let go of the, the restrictions that I had when the, and the the concept that, no, it's got to be 75-minute vinyasa floor. It's got to be a scheduled time with a bunch of people around me. That's never going to happen. 
I'm not going to make that kind of time. So I'm getting better. You, I should have a daily practice and I'm getting, getting to there. So. Right. It's interesting. What, what would you say about the yoga apps that are on there, um, that are on, you know, the app store and, you know, you can kind of go through these routines that they curate for you. What is the difference for someone that isn't quite aware of what a studio environment is like? Um, what's the difference between doing that where you can pay, you know, 10 bucks a month and do yoga, they can do a yin or a vinyasa or whatever, um, versus going into the studio? What, how, how is that different? I don't think, I can't speak intelligently about this too much because I haven't had the experience, but I don't think there'd be any difference from a yeah, an app to somebody who would have come to yoga from a DVD, like a P90X or something they found, like a, I don't know, Jane Fonda yoga video or whatever. <laughs> um, I think the experience would be the same where you're in isolation and there's nobody there with a critical eye to say, you're going to hurt yourself if you do that. Mm. That's not healthy or that doesn't look right or you're really, really on the edge of, you know, injury. I think the safety of having somebody there that's got an eye for alignment and is paying attention to alignment and cueing you, teaching you the pose, not telling you, do warrior one, do warrior two, now do something else. Where you're like, look around, is that warrior one? Okay, I'll give it a try. If somebody's actually telling you, put your heel down, press into your big toe, lift your arch, stretch here, lift here, now float. And then they can come around and tell you like, okay, now calm down, start to breathe. You're going to get through this. That, that's how I'd say the difference. If you're doing yoga at home, God bless you. If you're using an app, if you're using a DVD, God bless you. You're on the path, but eventually come into a studio. Eventually find somebody who can teach you and lead you. Do you find it's helpful for students to have the other people around them as well? Lots of times, not even for the asana, the, the physical poses. Sometimes it's just good to be there. Mm-hmm. If, you know, God forbid, you've just lost a loved one or you've just got bad news or you're recovering from something, to be in that environment, to have that space held for you and to be in that energy even if you just wind up in child's pose and you're crying into your mat, the the healing of just being in that space, I think, is really beneficial for a lot of people. And and we see that. We see people come in where it's just, I had nowhere else to go. This I just needed to be here. And it's terrific. Happy to be here and happy to help. It's amazing, man. Yeah. I really respect like where you have come from and the story that precipitated all of this and it's it's beautiful to see uh the type of vulnerability that you exude and i think we can all learn a little bit from someone such as yourself um, (laughs) and not even just that i i don't think that you have all the solutions i mean this is a big journey for you as well but to show people that hey look you can look inside without being afraid of what's there yeah and there's actually safe spaces where you can do it. And it doesn't just take going to a, you know, a, a counselor or a psychotherapist. There's other ways to go inwards. I was reading a book on trauma and, and yoga. This was a classically trained doctor that grew up, you know, getting the traditional degree, the subspecialty and all that stuff. So he's a widely regarded trauma uh, doctor. And he, one of his healing modalities among, you know, the, the EMDR uh, 
all of these traditional psychotherapy modalities, among them was yoga. And that was really interesting to read. And it's all about someone that's experienced trauma reconnecting with their body because often there's a complete disconnect between not only the emotional and rational brain, but who we are in our heads versus the body that we have. And just that simple act of connecting to your breath can have amazing outcomes for people who have been traumatized. Oh yeah, yeah. That just shows you the power of yoga. And, and it's really cool to see someone taking that to the next level. Well, and that's, you know, not to carry on too much longer, but again, like I said, if recovering from alcoholism and getting to sober, if you realize that's not the finish line, well, well, well now what's next? Or if, if your goal was to lose 100 pounds or to do a big transformation and you get there, well, that wasn't the finish line, now what's next? Or God forbid you get cancer and, and you manage to survive that diagnosis, that's not the finish line. You got to realize I got to deal with this still. I got, I've, I've got stuff I got to deal with. Why was I overeating? Why was I self-medicating? You know, now that I'm healthy, what do I do up, up inside? What do I do with all those locked doors that I haven't dealt with yet? Like that, there's always something that we have to acknowledge that we're avoiding. And these are the best tools I've found. So it's amazing. Well, I really thank you for coming in. And before we let you go, um, David and I both have, you know, a couple questions or a question each that we like to ask all yeah. of our guests. So David can kind of go first. Uh, mine's real simple. Wind down is uh, what are you currently obsessed with right now? Oh, great question. Um, Could be like Baby Yoda. Um, Everything comes back to Star Wars for you. Does it really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to be That's honest. Hilarious. I watched The Mandalorian, but you, a lot of The Mandalorian, it reminds me of cheesy 70s, like uh, uh, the old ABC hour-long TV shows. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's really comical that they've just put all these trappings of Star Wars helmets on people, but it's just a bunch of villagers looking for a cowboy to ride in and help them. Like, but I love Baby Yoda. But I got to be honest, I'm a Watchmen guy. I'm just obsessed with Watchmen, and I got two more episodes to go before I just, no, I don't want this to end. I hope, I hope, uh, I hope they do another, uh, season. another season of Watchmen because I love that. What's it about? It's just a um, sequel to the Watchmen comic series. Never saw that Oh, really? Dr. Manhattan and the Night Owl and all this? Oh, okay. Wow. You got is it like crime fighting or what is it? It's superheroes where society considers them vigilantes, which is oh, what I'm all... sold. There we go. Which yeah, that's right all, up your alley, man. Which is what all superheroes really are in the end, right? They're vigilantes. Yep. We, we, we give them this cloak, but they're, they're vigilantes. They're out punching the shit out of people. Did I tell you you could do that? Like, are we sure they're bad guys? Like, so it's The Watchmen, the, the, the graphic novel is about that. Interesting. And now this HBO series is just uh, 30 years later in Earth, but an alternate setting where, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you love it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right up your alley. As soon as you said it, like you're explaining, I'm like, I'm surprised you haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah. And then the other obsession is Dry Settle and McDavid. Who's going to win the scoring race and who's going to win the heart? Yeah. Oh, there is. oh yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, Dry is doing really good, isn't he? Yeah. That's cool, man. Um, the question that I like to ask so you've got someone in front of you who's just graduated high school. 
they don't have plans to go to university. They don't have a job or they do have a job. That's just kind of like one of your typical workforce, you know, general the dead end jobs where you're just, you're just doing it to get a paycheck, right? Um, might be a little apathetic. They just don't really know where to go in life. Where, when you're speaking to, to a kid like that, what would you recommend that they do? How do they start? Because life is, is big and it's scary and it's wild. Yeah, I've never had the opportunity to have a conversation with someone like that where I wasn't their age already. Um, I think the two things I would advise is one, you're not going to recognize the person you are at 30 or 40 or 50. Like you will not have the same beliefs. You will not have the same hobbies or goals like that is transformative and nothing set in stone. It's a path and you can't be prepared for what that path looks like. So don't, don't get stuck. Find something you're passionate about, even if it's not a job or whatever. Find what makes you happy and then just trust that things are going to evolve because you can't stop the path. When you get to 30, you're not going to know what the hell to do next because none of us did. And you're going to look back and go, who the hell was I at 20? I don't know that guy. So start from that perspective. Start at 20 and just realize you don't know what you don't know. Interesting. I like that. I like that. Yeah. I like that perspective of not, you know, don't, don't fret, especially like that works for someone when something goes wrong. It's like having the faith that you'll, you'll be all right, (laughs) you know, but also the the positives don't last sometimes too. You feel great one day, it's it's not going to hang on. You can't hang on. You can't be obsessed or attached to it because that's what causes suffering. You just know that you don't know what you don't know. Classic Buddhism. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, you were going to say something. Nothing. I was just saying, I like that, uh, you're not going to recognize the person you are uh, at 30, 40, 50. It's going to be different and constantly changing. I'm 55 and I had no clue what was coming. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting. I mean, even year to year, but on a on a decade scale like that is uh, the transformation is phenomenal. Like you can't even you would never be able to pinpoint it. And you know, five years, you'll you'll wind up living somewhere, and you're like, how did the path get here? Yeah, like, how did I wind up in Vernon? Mm-hmm. It was never on my radar. Mm-hmm. I don't think I spent five minutes here before I moved here, and now I'm here. Like It's wild. Yeah. So you can't predict. You're not going to know. You just. Well, man, you look damn good for 55, well, if I might that. say. I'll take you look that. pretty good. I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> Me I neither. definitely wouldn't have guessed that. So Well, to not knowing, gentlemen. To yeah. not knowing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Sean. For sure. I'd love yeah. to plug. Is that an option? Absolutely, man. Yeah, yeah. So bulletac.com is my website. Um, you can find my schedule there. You can find my blog there. The journey tab will take you to my story and it's in chapters. It's not fully written, but I'm getting there. Um, and you can follow along with that journey. Um, the studio is Lotus and Lettuce and on Facebook, I'm at bullet or bullet AC yoga. And what's what's the easiest way for people to get a hold of you? Uh, my website. Website? You can email me or you can find my social there. So awesome. We'll go Thank to you a so class. much. I can personally to attest to how, how good the you? class is. Yeah. <laughs> You're a great instructor, man. And I've, it's been a joy getting to know you. And, and thank you for being vulnerable in this room with us in the studio. And then thanks for coming and sharing your wisdom because we learn something from every, every guest, but the, the aspect of vulnerability can take us so many different places that it's, you know, especially appreciated. So yeah. 
I'm absolutely happy to be here and you guys did me a favor. So thank you. Cheers. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have you on again someday for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Sean. My pleasure.